And today we'll be looking at the pitfalls of prosperity. Luke chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 34. Now the teachings of Jesus, as presented in the Gospel of Luke, are set within a particular context. It's not always a chronological context. Sometimes the topics are more, uh, or the accounts are topically arranged. Sometimes the arrangement is also chronological, but not always. And so the setting of this story is found in actually chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, In the meantime, when they were gathered together in an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch as they, they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That was the subject matter of last week's study. But notice the, the opening phrase, in the meantime. So while he was discussing with the scribes and Pharisees, as recorded in the last chapter, where the scribes and the Pharisees began to plot how they might attack Jesus, and here he's going to speak with the disciples concerning some areas of warning. First of all, hypocrisy. And today we're going to look at the pitfall of prosperity. Have you ever had the experience of knowing that someone was out to get you? Uh, sometimes we, we think, well, that's, that's, what our, that's what the IRS does, you know, or that's what the government does, or is that... That's what my neighbor does. You know, he's out to get me. He's always doing something, whatever. But they're always watching your every move, and they're doing their best to try to trip you up. Well, that kind of circumstance would worry anyone. And so it is in this context that Jesus speaks on the subject of worry and anxiety. Uh, the entire first part of the chapter is taken up on this theme. Notice there in, in verse 4, Be not afraid. Uh, in verse 5, uh, I forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Verse 7, fear not, therefore. Verse 11, take no thought. In other words, don't worry. Uh, don't be anxious. Uh, and down in verse 22, it says, take no thought for your life. Again, the thought of worry or anxiousness. Verse 25, which of you taking thought can add to his stature? In verse 26, why take ye thought? For the rest. Well, in the midst of this theme of anxiety, thinking about someone uh, out to get us, Jesus is dealing with a certain type of anxiety, and that's financial anxiety. Notice the setting for the parable. Verse 13 and 14 says, And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me, and he said unto him, Man, who made me judge or divider over you? Now this passage begins with an interruption. Jesus has been teaching about the importance of fearing the spiritual over the physical. But there was a man in the crowd who was preoccupied with his material inheritance that he hadn't heard a word that Jesus said. And the world has a way of doing that to us. 
It's easy to get so concerned about the immediacy of our particular circumstances or our situation or problems that we can't see anything else. When you find yourself holding a hammer, it's easy to see everything as a nail. But Jesus didn't have a hammer. He had the gospel or he had the cross. And so the request of this man was not without warrant. It was a custom for the rabbis to mediate between uh, people concerning such disputes. But notice the specific request which this man makes. He does not ask Jesus to hear the merits of the case and make a decision. He just asks Jesus to prejudge the case in his favor. So notice, secondly, a warning against greed. Verse 15, And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. Now we don't hear many sermons on greed, but one of the Ten Commandments deals with this specific sin. Think about it. If you were going to be asked to write down some significant laws for a nation, what would you write? Write against murder? Certainly. A theft? Or morality? Well, what about greed? God considered it to be very important as well. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. I am not a suit of clothes. I am not a house. I'm not a car. My identity is not in those things. And I realize when you see a certain car, you think, oh, there goes so-and-so. But really, our identity is not in the car. My self-worth should not be tied to things. So they come to the telling of the parable, verse 16. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentiful, plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, you notice a personal pronoun here. It's the pronoun I. He had some eye trouble. The word I and my are used 10 times in this passage. This does not mean it's always wrong to use those pronouns, but in, my, in this case, it is a description of a man who lives for himself, for the moment. He doesn't take God into account. Certainly, he does not even take himself into account. He does not realize that his own life is limited. So you see here a philosophy of pleasure. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, says in verse 19. Now, this was a philosophy of the Epicureans. Luke, as a Greek physician, would have been familiar with them. They rose to prominence in the years following Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and they engaged in the pursuit of pleasure. 
Their motto was maximum amount of happiness for a minimum amount of effort. Sounds like many today, doesn't it? The philosophy of pleasure. We're just going to have a good time. We're just going to have fun. Well, eat, drink, and be merry. But notice what God said unto him, thou fool. True foolishness in verse 20. Now, this is not speaking of his intellectual capacity. It's an evaluation of his life. He's living his life as though there was no God. Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have gone or they have done abominable works that there is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They were all gone aside. They were all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So the fool is one who acts as though God does not exist. There's a lot of people who claim to believe God, but who act as though he has taken a long walk and hasn't come back. In other words, they are practicing atheists. In fact, I act that way whenever I sin. Whenever you sin, you act that way. You're acting as if God does not exist. I think that's something that should cause us to stop and think. Here's a man who acted as though God was not there. He ignored the fact that his very material possessions over which he lavished so much attention were a gift from God. And so he ignored ignored what was the very purpose of his wealth. He treated wealth as an end to itself rather than as an opportunity to be used for the glory and honor of the Lord. Thirdly, a requirement of God. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Now this literally says, in this night they demand your soul from you. It's a common use of a Jewish rabbi to speak of God. He was known as a plural of majesty. The man made two incorrect incorrect presumptions. First of all, he presumed that the world would continue to possess his wealth in the future. And then he presumed that he would be alive in the future to enjoy whatever possessions he had. And so the man thought he was in control of his life, but the Lord who determined the length of man's days, the man looked at his wealth as his security and was unmindful that our security is really only in the Lord. So that brings us to the point of the parable. Verse 21. So he that layeth up treasure for himself. Now it is a fatal act of folly to do as this man did. If you're going to accumulate riches, make them eternal riches. Make them riches toward God. Now that brings me up to a question. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Well, it's salvation. The believer is a possessor of all the riches of Christ Jesus. By the way, did you see a correlation between the situation in the parable and the situation of the man who had come to Jesus? The fact that he's coming and arguing over the inheritance indicates that someone has died and left a lot of money. So what good is it to them? They couldn't take it with them. They could only leave it behind. And even then, it only led to a family feud. 
That brings us to the question of work. Before we leave the parable, I want to ask you this question. What does the parable say about the value of work? Is this an excuse to stop working? To stop providing for the needs of my family? Does this mean I should not plan for the future? No, certainly not. The Bible has quite a lot to say about the importance of work and of planning. Jesus told a parable about the foolish of one, foolishness of one who set to build a tower without first counting the cost and what it would take to finish it in Luke chapter 14. So there's nothing wrong with planning for the future, but those plans ought to include all of the future. They don't stop when you die. They should be concerned about your life after death. To plan for anything less is to sell short your own soul. Now we come to the interpretation or the interpreting of the, the parable. Jesus begins this section with the words, And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you. This is an explanation of the parable which he had just told. First of all, there's a warning against anxiety. Verse 22, And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, neither for your body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Anxiety and worry is the counterpart of greed. Greed can never get enough. Anxiety is afraid that it may not have enough. So if you're going to worry, at least be smart enough to worry about the right thing. If you're going to worry, then worry about that which lasts. Worry about eternity. But better yet, come to Christ, trust in him as your Lord, and you'll be able to cease from all the worry altogether. Then we come to the giving of three illustrations. All three of these illustrations are seen in contrast to the rich fool in the previous passage. First of all, their illustration of the ravens. Verse 24, Consider the ravens, for they are neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? Now the raven was on the Levitical list of unclean animals. If, you ever, if ever an animal could be considered worthless, it was the raven. And yet they're pictured as a part of God's consideration. If God's concerned about ravens, and how much more would he have concern for you? You say, that looks like a crow. Well, there is a difference between a crow and a raven, yes, but they're very similar. As a young boy, we had the crows of Medora, Kansas, very near our uh, Hutchison boyhood home. And uh, so we had this area that we would drive past if we were going down that highway north of Hutchinson, and you'd look, and that's all you'd see was just crows all over the place. We see one or two or three or four here now, but uh, this was, by the way, which types of crows are best known to stick together? Velcros. Did you know there's a recent study showing that crows are hit a lot more by trucks than they are cars? 
The conclusion was that because crows can warn each other, car, car, they, don't, they can't say truck, truck. Well, anyway, crows. Crows and ravens are very similar. And so this is an illustration here on, in this parable of an unclean animal, worthless. And I haven't found a good uh, worth, uh, worthiness of a crow either, although they do uh, eat grubs and insects and all kinds of stuff. I suppose that, that'd be a good thing. Anyway, illustration number two, 20, verse 25. And which of you are taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Now, some have would like to interpret this as this word stature as your years or adding to your life. And it would seem clear that when you're talking about adding measurement, a cubit, that would be talking about your height. Now, it could be interpreted your life, but I think it's talking more about your height. People at times vainly wish they looked different or had different bodily proportions. One might stand on their tiptoes to make themselves look slightly taller, or some might even wear platform shoes. But, you know, no one can add a cubit. That's 18 inches. No matter how hard you try, no many, no... Whatever you do, I suppose you could put walk around on stilts. But Jesus' advice was very simple. If ye then not be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Illustration number three. Verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more shall he clothe you, O ye of little faith? If God arrays the lilies, he's able to clothe you. If God provides for short-lived grass, then he can provide for you. And so we worship a God who provides. He provides birds and flowers, and he's able to provide for each one of us. That brings us to a calling for compassion. In verse 29, it says, And seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's a very strong statement. Jesus is calling his people to give their money uh, to him. But it's not necessarily a call for a church building fund. It's a call to give to those who are in need. A call to give, in, uh, give to charity is uh, kind of what is meant here in verse 33. The word translated alms is, uh, means compassionate, benefit, uh, or beneficial. The uh, point is that when we give to the poor, we're giving to Jesus. 
He wants everything that you have and everything that you are. Does that mean that I'm sinning if I have a savings account or if I own my own house? No, I don't think so. But it does mean that I need to be generous to those who are in need. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good and they they rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So in this passage, the rich are not told to get rid of their riches, but they are told not to trust in their riches, to share, be generous, and to this, and this is what Jesus is describing here. If you're working to gain the wealth of the world, you will lose the wealth of God. And so what are you seeking? I would conclude with several principles here. Your view of the future will determine your present conduct. If you really believe that you're going to die tomorrow, would anything be different today? By the same token, what are you going to do today that reflects the truth that one day you will stand before the judge of the universe? Your view of what is most important in life is crucial to know is how to live your life. So what are your priorities? What is the one thing that you are careful to make first place in your life no matter what? The principle here is that you need to make the first thing first in your life. Life does not consist in material possessions. It's not what you have that is important, but whose you are that is eternally significant. Let's pray.